Welcome to the Contrarians, where we are right and you are wrong. I'm Julio. And I'm Alex. Here on the show, we rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. For the first half of each episode, Contrarians Corner, we trash the fresh red tomatoes and praise the rotten green splotches, making our case any way we can. The aptly titled Real Talk serves as the second half of each episode. This is where we discuss our true feelings on the movie we're covering. For more information on our podcast and to browse past episodes, you can head over to our website, wearethecontrarians.com. From there, you can also access our patron and merchandise, because capitalism. If you enjoy our attempts at comedic film discussions, we encourage you to subscribe and leave us a review on whatever podcatcher you use. If you'd like to reach out to us directly, that's what social media is for. You can find us on most platforms as at Contrarian Prime. You can also see what we look like if you go to youtube.com slash at Contrarian Prime, and you can contact us by email at wearethecontrarians at gmail.com. I think that covers it. Then it's time for the podcast. And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner for Drop Dead Gorgeous. Hello, welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Here today to tackle the 1999 dark comedy. What is it? American satirical mockumentary black comedy film. That's a mouthful right there. <laughs> Never a good sign when they put so many descriptors of the genre. Only only a few chosen titles managed to break that curse. More jumbled than the actual description of the film is the, the cast here. It's just we're going to be name dropping A-listers all day long, it seems. For a movie, though, that does not necessarily hold the highest esteem in the universe of Rotten Tomatoes with a 47% rating, one of those nasty green splotches, based on 74 reviews. The audience score, based on over 50,000 reviews, though, is 75%. So maybe something to that that we uh, look to in the second half. The critical consensus, it's dark humor sometimes hits, but mostly misses the target. To which I say, you are wrong. Critical consensus. <laughs> uh, I, I was hoping that you would be able to answer this, Alex, since you've seen the movie before and I haven't. Is this the second part of the Drop Dead trilogy? And if so, what is the third part? Or did they not make a, a, a third Drop Dead movie because this one didn't make as much money? Because you have Drop Dead Fred in 1991, mm -hmm. then Drop Dead Gorgeous 1999, we're long overdue for a drop dead movie that closes the trilogy if there's not one out already. No, it looks like there's a movie titled Drop Dead. Uh, that's the English translation. It's Valdude, <laughs> uh, which is a short film from 2009. What begins as an exciting parachuting jumping adventure takes a nightmarish turn when the instructor shows signs of suicidal behavior. Sounds like a crack up. <laughs> How about this? Drop Dead Sexy, 2005, with Jason Lee and Crispin Glover. My God. When their money scam runs aground, a group of would-be thieves turn to kidnapping in an attempt to blackmail their target. And Amber Heard. Disgraced actress. Disgraced actress <laughs> Amber Heard. Uh, okay, I guess I guess we know what we're doing for the next bonus episode. <laughs> there's, there's a universe out there, it looks like, uh, of uh, Drop Dead Films. If we're if there's one that you're thinking of on the top of your head that you really like, also be sure to let us know. Whatever the case, this is the second in the Drop Dead, the 
DDU that has come <laughs> to us by way of patron request or demand, excuse me. Who who requested drop that Fred? Was it Paul? Mm-hmm. Okay. A Paul pick for the first one. And now it's a Jamie Russell pick. Jamie Russell usually, you know, he's a he's a film professor. So he usually hits us with the highbrow stuff. And then I think he also did Tangon Cash, so maybe not. <laughs> but in this case, I did a whole lot of research, that's mostly your field. But just from pulling up the quotes and all this stuff, I kind of got the feeling that Drop Dead Gorgeous is not uh, something that I imagine Jamie would discuss in his film classes. Maybe he would. I don't know. I guess he'll he'll set us straight if that's not the case. But an unusual pick from Jamie. Uh, not going to complain. I mean, he says jump and we say how high. Yeah. So here we are. How high, Alex? Quite high with the ambitions of this movie. Released on July 23rd of 1999. Uh, this movie was a box office bomb at the time, and I can already tell you that's the first problem right there is that this was a summer release. Uh, you got to think that given like maybe a um, January, February, March release, this would have had a better chance. For the people that don't want to watch Star Wars for a 10th time, what do you give them? You give them an improved version of what Christopher Guest has been trying to do for years. Yes. You give them not best in show. That hack, Christopher Guest, has fooled America into thinking that he's the only one that can pull off the mockumentary genre. Have you noticed that? Like, I didn't think about that until like, I was watching this movie. I was like, you know, it is unfair to to other filmmakers that do this sort of stuff that I watch this movie and I think, oh, yeah, they're, they're doing like Christopher Guest, but good. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that there are others, just filmmakers, other directors that are that dabble in the mockumentary style, but it's more like, it's almost like Guest has this monopoly on it. <laughs> Can't really break through the Christopher Guest ceiling. He tried to file an injunction when the office was started over the United Kingdom. He's like, <laughs> I've got this shit on lock. No one else is allowed to have any success with this. Have you noticed that the Blair Witch sequels are not filmed <laughs> as documentaries? Well, whatever the case, Christopher Guest or not, it didn't work out for the duo of Michael Patrick Jan and Lona Williams, the director-writer combo on this. Um, Michael Patrick Jan uh, had some television and a few other film directing credits. I was unfamiliar with anything else that he had done. Lona Williams in the film industry had also written Sugar and Spice, which came out a few years later, which is uh, a teen that's like that's a comedy, right? Is it James Martin in it? Mina Savari is in it too, uh, of loser fame, of course. I've never seen it. I'm just vaguely familiar with the idea. It's like a group of cheerleaders that rob a bank or something like that. But she also worked on The Simpsons, and for the purposes of what we're doing here, she she's quoted as saying, "I really was only a typist for the show, but by working on the script, I learned how scripts were put together. I would go." to work and type all day and come home and work on my spec scripts for The Simpsons and Roseanne. Uh, she provided voices for the show, including that of Amber Dempsey, who is a single sh- character that only appeared on one episode, and that is the episode where Lisa uh, Homer uh, signs her up for the beauty pageant, and Amber Dempsey is the reigning champion, who is eventually uh, unable to continue her duties as the reigning Little Miss Springfield because lightning hits her scepter. So that's a fitting introduction to the writer of this film as that's something that could clearly be seen, uh, you know, the the parallels in this movie. Um, Julio, this was a first time viewing for you, correct? 
Yes, it is. I was mildly aware of this movie in the sense that I recognized the title when Jamie brought it up. But that was that was it. I was not ready for just the scope of talent that was going to be peppered throughout. And I, yes, there's like the big names and we'll go through those. But there's also little, little cameos, not even cameos, like extended characters there. Uh, I mean, Doctor Who's Will Sasso is a recurring character in this movie. Mm-hmm. Returning to the Contrarians, and um, his brother is the guy who played FDR on Seinfeld. I can never remember his name. He's just always FDR. Uh, I said in the teaser for this at the end of the last episode when we announced this is our next one, that I think Julio didn't, because I did not, the first time I saw this movie, have an accurate grasp on really what it was. So I'm curious to circle back to see if, Julio, this is what you just thought it was going to be or uh, if that was different. But that'll come in uh, part two. And I can tell you for sure, the spreadsheet we have of upcoming episodes, I will not neglect that anymore because I was very excited when Julio told me this is what we were doing. And (laughs) I, up until that point, had been unaware. So let's get down to it. Let's get down to brass tacks. Let's take a trip to Mount Rose, Minnesota and uh, <laughs> eat some lutefisk and uh, enjoy a night at the cinema. Competing for the title of Minnesota's American Teen Princess sure was exciting, but I never could have won without my St. Paul pork products. Julio, 47% on Rotten Tomatoes. A uh, little higher than we typically shoot for with these episodes, but you know it's a patron demand, so as you said, we will continue to ask how high. 47% though does mean it's rotten, so we'll be treating it as such, praising it here in the first half, and then we'll get to our real feelings in the second. So what critical quotes did you pull from Rotten Tomatoes from people that, uh, frankly, I think didn't get it or have just too squeaky clean a sense of humor? Or they're from Minnesota, maybe. That too. If I had the gift for accents... Yeah, you do, Alex. I would do all these quotes with a Minnesota accent. But alas, you're stuck with just my Peruvian accent. Sorry. Uh, We'll start with Matt Brunson from Film Frenzy, who says, Imagine Heathers or Election without their savvy satire or impeccable comic timing, and you basically get drop-dead gorgeous. I was wondering how long it was going to take for Heathers to be mentioned. (laughs) First quote, right off the bat. Right out of the gate. Election? Did you think of Election while watching this? No, but that came out in 1999, so it was probably fresh on everyone's mind. Well, there's a whole episode about Heathers that we did during the summer of Winona. And uh, I can tell you that, I mean, yes, you could bring it up, but there are, I mean, that movie came out so long ago. And for people, I know this is back in, you know, 99, but still, at this point, movies have expanded so much that really, who's making comparisons to Heathers anymore? You know what I mean? It's Mean Girls now. Like people would say, a Mean Girls for its day, or you know, even though I will say Heather's is obviously a bit darker than Mean Girls, but it was just, I guess, a standard bearer. the The funny part is, I just thought that's what people were going to compare it to, but I don't think this is anything like Heather's. It's not Heather's. It's not. You know what it is? Just to talk to, to keep it in contrarian's lore. It is pre-persuasion, but, uh, but good. Yes, <laughs> it's pre-persuasion, but they pull it off. Where it's pre-persuasion, but it doesn't gross you out in a way that keeps you from enjoying the movie. This one grosses you out, but it makes you laugh, and that's clearly as 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 demonstrated by pre-persuasion. That's really tough to do. 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Matt Brunson, how about you? Uh, you watch more movies and don't go for just the things that were headlining box office reports. Next, Susan Stark from Detroit News says, as mean-spirited as movies come. <laughs> that's, a, that's an unfortunate take. <laughs> Too mean. Susan wishes that there was not so much violence in movies and cinema today. Susan, allow me to direct you to this wonderful studio called Disney. They might just have the right level of mean-spiritedness that, that you want in your movies. Next, Arthur Lazare from culturevulture.net says, Some of this material is undeniably funny, but it will surely be painful to some viewers and reinforce negative prejudice in others. Reinforce negative prejudice in others. So it... What, that beauty pageants are inherently bad? Or is this someone from the Midwest that thinks they're just being portrayed in an overly stereotypical, albeit accurate fashion? Why not both? <laughs> but <laughs> I would say to that, I would say uh, it's a joke, man. Get a sense of humor. It's, it's all good. You know, I think that if it's painful to some viewers, then maybe those viewers need to do some soul searching and figure out why it's painful. If the organizers of uh, beauty pageants find that this movie bothers them, then maybe they need to think long and hard about why it's bothering them. Mm-hmm. So, Arthur, it's called uh, Looking at Yourself in the Mirror. And we're going to close with Brian Farnham from City Search, who says, energetically acted, but too in love with its own outrageousness. Drop Dead Gorgeous goes for the jugular of beauty pageant culture and ends up leaving only a hickey. As we've mentioned so far, it is important to keep in mind this movie's presented like a mockumentary. Uh, and this being, you know, Christopher Guest jokes aside, uh, how would you say it? If you want to make a joke about Christopher, be my guest. But with that aside, <laughs> this was during a time where this, this was certainly not the norm. You know, The Office kind of done changed the game when that came along. Uh, obviously, starting in the United Kingdom with Ricky Gervais at the helm and then its American transplant. No real melodrama in the statement of saying it changed television in America. And, you know, we've had Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and I'm sure there's plenty of others that people Modern can name. Family. Modern Family. Uh, these shows that have taken off and become kind of staples of their networks that just mimic the idea of the mockumentary. So it's very commonplace now and something people are used to seeing. Whereas in 1999, unless you were a Christopher Guest fan... You know, this wasn't something you normally saw. So I'm curious. We know because in the 99 Blair Witch had this effect where people thought it was a real movie. You know, no one thinks anything's real now. People went and saw Blair Witch and thought that was real footage. So there is a legitimate possibility that one person that saw this movie in 1999 thought it was a legitimate documentary. I don't know how with the star (laughs) power that's in it. Well, Well... yeah, that's the star powers by today's standards. Yeah, well, Kirstie Alley. But but you know that there are people that don't go to the movies very often. She gets top billing, right? Does she? Yeah, she does. She does, and then um, Ellen Barkin, I think, gets second with uh, Dunstan Richards following up. Dog, this was after Wild Things. That was the thing I had to look up because I knew Wild Things was 98. And so when I was watching this, I thought I was going crazy. Uh, Denise Richards was like 30 in this movie playing a 17 year old. So <laughs> God bless. Y'all know that's the type of shit I live for in movie making. So what you're saying is that there were a lot of people that, okay, let's, let's be, let's be serious. There were a lot of men that went to see Drop Dead Gorgeous just on the strength of having enjoyed wild things. It's possible. Now I'll get to in the second half why that may not be the case. Uh, <laughs> but 
watching this now, I, I I know in that close of proximity, I would have been like, I know Denise Richards ain't a good Christian woman. I've seen that Wild Things movie. <laughs> Uh, I like the idea, though, that there's this this older couple that goes to the movies once a year and they just walk into Drop Dead Gorgeous and they think that maybe that lady looks like the, the woman from Cheers and then that other lady there looks like uh, Ellen Barkin. But no, surely they're, they're not because it is a documentary. And then they just sit through the whole thing and they're like, yeah, that's that's what Minnesota's like. And they see Will Sasso and they go, isn't that that one guy from the Doctor Who movie? <laughs> Alex, the guy that plays Denise Richards' dad, th- there are two Friends connections in this movie. In 1999, I mean, Friends was up and running. Oh, he was on Friends? Yeah. The, the guy that plays uh, Denise Richards' dad is uh, Chandler's boss, who shows up in a, in a, a few oh, episodes. Oh, I know him as he's Doug Heffernan's boss on King of Queens. So he had a knack for that role, it appears. <laughs> Does he grab uh, his employees' butts in King of Queens? Okay, I remember that now. I remember exactly what you're referencing in that episode. Yeah, I because Chandler brings it to his attention and hilarity ensues. But yep, <laughs> I mean now remembering that and also his role in King of Queens, and then here he really is just uh, not a that guy actor, but just this is the character he plays, and it's yes. funny. <laughs> Sometimes, you, I mean, you just have to lean into what you're good at. And this guy is good at playing smarmy. See, that's my specialty. You don't pay less, I give you more. All right, so the year in the film, the documentary being made, and also I didn't see any clear shot of him, so it must have just been voiceover, but uh, Thomas Lennon has a credit as the documentarian in this. Officer Jim Dangle himself, you know? New boot goofing. uh, I guess he's the one that we never see. Like the the camera, because we see the sound guy and we see a couple other guys. <laughs> At the end when they bump into the, the cops crew. That's a pretty funny moment. Yeah. It's 1995 and the small conservative town of Mount Rose, Minnesota is preparing for the annual Sarah Rose Cosmetic American Teen Princess Pageant. A film crew is in town to document the pageant and its lead up. One of the interviewees is 17-year-old Amber Atkins. This is uh, Kirsten Dunst, who signs up for the pageant in hopes of winning a college scholarship and following in the footsteps of her idol, Diane Sawyer. Uh, in the opening, it's all to establish the beauty pageant. We find that Adam West is like the MC of the Nationals, and he plays himself in this. So, so right away, we not only know from firing up the DVD and seeing the players involved, but we also get Batman. So we're off to a good start here. Well, it's not just Batman. It's 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 Adam West as Adam West. I mean, it's not just that Adam West is playing uh, sort of like the the William Shatner character from Miss Congeniality, but also that he's a setup for a joke that doesn't pay off until the very end of the movie, almost. And it references the fact that he's he's kind of known in Hollywood as a horn dog. And I was not expecting that to be put up on the screen. For you know, I always assumed that that was kind of like a hush hush kind of deal where, where people know about it, but they don't really bring it. They certainly don't put it in movies. And uh, no, it's right there. They, Adam West is uh, hosting these things. He's the MC for these contests because he likes to get laid. We go from Batman to Lois Lane. Julio, were you prepared for young Amy Adams? Nope. I had to bring up IMDb just to confirm that that was her. I believe this was her first movie. And she is fucking hilarious in this. She is just the first shot in a barrage of, uh, of of actresses that I know. 
that I that, that are huge now. Uh, how old was Kirsten Dunst, by the way, when she did this movie? Was she 35? Kirsten Dunst? I mean, just a few years earlier, she was playing, like, what, a 12-year-old in uh, Jumanji? Uh, 1982, this would have been 98-ish, so she would have been, what is that, 18? Okay. Is that is that math? No, 17. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> if this was filmed in 1998, she would have been 16, and then, yeah, 17 when the movie came out. I didn't realize she was that young. She's only five years younger than me. God bless. So Kirstie Alley, yeah, exactly, would have been the the veteran on set. She would have been the one to call in the ring and say, just stick with me, kids. You'll be all right. Uh, her sidekick in this uh, played by, is that Mindy Sterling? Is that her name? Uh, Frau yes, uh, from I, uh, Austin Powers. I, my note said Lily Tomlin. And it took me, I don't know, at least 20 minutes to realize that was not Lily Tomlin. <laughs> Also, she's in Eurotrip, so back in the Contrarians once again. Uh, they're leading this pageant. We find out that Kirstie Alley, who plays uh, Gladys Lehman, was uh, it's the something anniversary of her winning this pageant. Niece Richards, who is Rebecca Lehman, Becky, is her daughter, and she's hoping that she's going to win. Celebrity idiot Denise Richards. That episode of 30 Rock was on the other day. Have you ever seen that where Tracy's... He creates a coalition of idiots and their celebrity spokesperson is Denise Richards. And it's really funny because she stands up to Liz and she goes, that's right. I'm an idiot. Surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I I feel like Denise Richards doesn't get enough credit for. I mean, I don't know. Is it just that she happened to choose a lot of roles that that enhanced the idea that she's a bimbo, that, you know, she's, oh, she's super hot, but she's not really that smart. And a lot of people build careers out of just sticking with one type. And She did marry Charlie Sheen, so I'm not sure how far off those casting choices were. Everybody makes mistakes. <laughs> I but kid, my, I kid. My point was going to be that because of the image that we have of Denise Richards, I was not ready to find her be so funny not playing this that character really i mean mm -hmm. she is kind of playing that character in the sense that oh well she's obviously meant to be an attractive woman and she is meant to be i mean she is smart obviously she's she's pretty devious in this movie mm -hmm. but she is not you could still say that her view of the world is kind of limited right and so that would be more of a that that part is kind of like what i think of when i think of denise richard's characters but still like i was not ready for her to be funny i when i saw in the cast i'm like okay she, they're just gonna play up the fact that she's super hot and that's it but they're not gonna i i didn't expect the movie to go to her for comedy and the movie did and she hit it every time you know <laughs> it was unexpectedly rewarding because i expected that from kirsten dunst Kirstie Alley, you know, there's Amy Adams. These are actresses that I know can do comedy. I, with Denise Richards, I I don't think I've seen her do comedy before, or at least not comedy that worked. And this was amazing. So it was a revelation. Rounding out our cast of characters that are in the pageant is Miss Brittany Murphy, the late, great Brittany Murphy. Luann Platter, uh, she's playing Lisa in this, and she is unquestionably to me the mvp of this uh, just fantastic but we have our characters we have the premise and what we're here for what we're here to do uh we'll get into the events that unfold here but julio it's important to ask at this point it, does any of this resonate with you or do you just find this all to just be like okay uh, as uh, what i mean by that is as someone who's spent time in the midwest obviously this is played up a little bit but uh, really? small town Midwest <laughs> life and, you know, the things that are important and the 
the people that think they're important. Is this something you can relate to as uh, you know, as as the immigrant of the two, or have I just spent enough time in the Midwest to kind of have a a more uh, not better appreciation, but kind of just a more real life experience with the, the types of people depicted in this? Well, I can relate to it in the sense that I'm somebody that has seen Fargo. And so I look at it and I'm like, oh, okay. So when people think that Fargo is funny, this is what they feel. Like, I think Fargo is a dud, but but this movie is funny. I, I think that it's, this movie plays it up just enough. I think that Fargo is a little too deadpan, but it's the same idea, right? Like, oh, people from Minnesota, they're just, you know, they have their own ways. This was fascinating. And I believe because there's so much intention palpable behind the camera here. Granted, we were not in the Trump era then, but still, this is fascinating as a look. Oh, yeah. Some of the ideas of Middletown America have intensified certainly since this. But this is a precursor to not a precursor, but it's like like a prequel, right? To to the MAGA movement. It was like you, you took this this small town and you look at it and when you watch it today, you're like, oh, it's not just that they voted for Trump. They probably have like the MAGA hats and everything. And But the really interesting part is that as the movie goes on, it humanizes these people in a way that we really don't today because today we're this uh, Cold War in America. It's a, here, yes, yeah, some of them are terrible people, but there's others that are just, you know, they have dreams and they have a, uh, they suffer heartbreak and there's a lot of, of, of nuance to, to these characters. It's something that you don't see today. Like, you know, if you made this movie today, it wouldn't give them any of that. Today, we would just, it would just be a takedown, like a brutal takedown of, uh, of right wingers in in a, in a red state, but this movie it doesn't. Even though it, you know, I think that if anything, it has more to say negatively about the institutions behind beauty pageants. You know, the, the whole idea of beauty pageants, where something like I mentioned, miscongeniality, something like miscongeniality, I think that. It makes fun of them a little bit, but also tries to show you that, oh, but there is like a sisterhood that comes with it and blah, blah, blah. Uh, this is more brutal. This is this is a lot more incisive when it comes to it. And I think that makes it uh, stand out more. Probably also explains why people reacted. <laughs> We're not crazy about it because, you know, it can be a little too harsh. I chose Mount Rushmore because to live in a country where you can take an ugly old mountain and put faces on it, faces of great Americans who did so much to make our country super great. Well, that makes me Rebecca Lehman, proud to be an American. Do you know what Ludafisk is when they mention Ludafisk in this movie? I have no idea. I just know that it sticks to uh, Kirsten Dunst's hair. Ludafisk, Julio, specific to, I want to say Minnesota and maybe Wisconsin. Um Ludafisk is cod. It's a dried out fish that is cured in lye and it basically congeals the fish to like a, a jelly like texture. I've never had it. There's a great episode of King of the Hill where Bobby like eats a whole tray of it and gets just like this horrendous bowel movement. Um, it sounds like something. <laughs> the- <laughs> Horrendous bowel movement is a wonderful string of words. Oh, then it leads to him accidentally burning the church down, like because he tries to light a match because it's so bad and it, he leaves it in a trash can. And anyway, 
Um, they're tie-in, you know, Brittany Murphy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it sounds like something that should be poisonous, and I'm not entirely sure the process of it and how it's not, but uh, I've never had the desire to eat it. I've seen what it looks like. It's just like a like a fish jelly, and uh, no thank you. I mean, they um, have that, that, that talking head, right? Like right after that scene where Kristen Dunst gets it on her head, they cut yeah. to the lady that explains what it is. And mm-hmm. I, I guess now I know that she wasn't making it up. Adam Richman on one of the episodes of Man vs. Food, I remember him eating it, and the guy with him's like, oh, that's good lutefisk, and it's like still bald in his mouth, and he's like, how can you tell? It just looks so <laughs> gross. Uh, but that, of course, a little touch of the local culture, and, and I would imagine some of our international listeners may not be familiar with lutefisk. If anyone's listening to this has ever actually eaten it and tried it, let me know. I, I don't plan to, but curious on what it tastes like. Among the other contestants are Becky, the daughter of the richest man in town. Becky's mother, Gladys, is the head of the pageant organizing committee and former winner. Because of the business connections between the Lehman's Furniture Store and pageant judges, many fear the contest could be rigged. In the days leading up to the pageant, many odd events occur around town, such as contestant Tammy Curry being killed when her threshing machine explodes and the death of a boy Becky liked who was interested in Amber, which is ruled as a hunting accident. Amber considers dropping out when her mother Annette's trailer explodes, but remains in the competition to make her mother proud. At the dress rehearsal, a stage light knocks out contestant Janelle and renders her deaf. So it seems from the start that Lehman's kind of have the city under their thumb, you know, and the cops, they definitely have them paid off. They're like Bullock from Batman uh, in that, well, they're not as sweaty as he is, but they... (laughs) They're paid off and like the trailer accident, like bad wiring. And they're just not open to the idea that any of this is, you know, uh, any foul play. I was. I, w- I was very excited, actually, that suddenly the movie had added an extra level and turned it to a murder mystery of sorts. The girl who was killed, Tammy, was thought to be the favorite to win. And then we get the the, the scene where Ludafisk is mentioned, where there's a boy at school who uh, expresses interest in Amber over Becky and he says he's going hunting and Amber works at the the local morgue. A new stiff comes in and she removes the sheet and it's this boy with a bullet in his head. I know we're making this sound very macabre, but the way it's played in the movie is it's pretty funny. Uh, if, you know, a dark comedy is your thing, this really takes you to some dark places. Yeah, uh, that reminds me. Uh, Kirsten Dunn's tap dancing, Alex. Endearing, spectacular, just okay. I mean, okay, just because her personality is so sunny, but but not really anything to write home about. Where do you land on this? Because we see a lot of uh, dancing from Kirsten Dunst. And I was enthralled. Manic Pixie Dream Girl. This but is the inspiration quite, right? for Susan Sarandon tap dancing in <laughs> yes. uh, Elizabethtown. Do <laughs> you think uh, Kirsten Dunst was giving her notes? Oh, that would be tremendous. She's like, well, <laughs> Sarandon approaches her on set. And is like, you know, I was a really big fan of Drop Dead Gorgeous. Can you teach me some of those moves? <laughs> and Kirsten Dunst doesn't realize that Susan Sarandon was humoring her. that's part of what makes those morgue scenes funny right i'm not saying Mm -hmm. it doesn't take the edge of the fact that they just murdered uh, the kid that liked her but also but it's just that she's putting makeup on the on the corpses and and dance tap dancing that's the whole thing she 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 took the job because it allows her to practice her talent and for the for the competition, you know, while she puts makeup on. And so there's the juxtaposition of her dancing <laughs> while she's surrounded by dead bodies. It's uh it's pretty brilliant. 
And and the movie does that through its entire runtime. We meet the panel of judges. There's literally a guy named John Doe who is an overt pedophile that's there just to <laughs> lust after the uh, the women. Harold is judge number two, uh, played by Mike McShane, as I mentioned, FDR from Seinfeld. And judge three is Lester Lehman's assistant from the furniture store, Sam McMurray, Chandler and Doug Heffernan's boss. Uh, that is Gene, and that's played actually by Lona Williams, the writer of the movie. Oh. So, yeah. I mean, she didn't give herself any lines, but I guess you got to know your strengths. Accompanied with the judges is Harold's brother, Hank, played by Will Sasso. And what I assume people would say is the part of the movie that ages most poorly. Um, now, this is a movie that does make fairly light of eating disorders and the whole pageant culture and just the absurdity of it all um and also the racist qualities of conservatives in the uh, midwest and uh some of their choices of language and what have you but will sasso in this is a bit dim and it's obviously played up for laughs big time uh julio you know we're not here to argue the merit of this character or you know what the aging of it is what i can just say is that for me personally uh, it's used sparingly enough that it in 2023 doesn't completely take away from the movie for me. To quote Ebert uh, at many of his reviews, reader, I laughed. So, I mean, I'm sorry. If it's funny, it's funny. And I I was, you know, I, I mean, as I was watching, I was aware that this could be problematic, and I'm sure it is in a way, right? Most of the time, he's not a punchline, though. I think that the whole thing is the punchline. Like, mm-hmm. the, this, this community seems ill-equipped to handle somebody with a low IQ. And so the way that they react is is really what's what's funny. Sometimes he is a punchline, but that's because everybody at some point in this movie is a punchline. So I was not, I don't know, I just took it as like, oh, well, you know, and this is the character that has this thing going. And, and I was more in awe, I guess, of the boldness of, of having a, a running pedophilia joke. That was what I was like, holy shit, they went there and they pulled it off. Uh, I know that you don't remember most of Mute, as, as has been referenced many times. Anytime I bring it up, you're like, what? What was that? But uh, the Justin Theroux character in Mute, uh, I mean, Mute is not a comedy, but he, you know, he has his own subplot where obviously he's interested in, in young girls. And I remember in the real talk part of that episode, you asked us, like, you, you said, has it ever worked? Whenever you have the the pedophile subplot in a movie, it, it's something that 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 works. That's worth including, and this movie makes it work. I think it's really funny because obviously it's not endorsing the behavior, right? Uh, and and it's just one of those things where it makes it so blatant. It's it's so in your face, and he acts so shifty <laughs> that it just it, it's funny, you know. At, at the same time. Even talking about it makes you feel dirty. So that's why I, w- I was impressed by that. The, the Will Sasso character, I mean, it made me laugh. And I, yes, some of it may have been in poor taste, but really when you put him next to, you know, the fact that they they chose this guy who's clearly into young girls uh, as a judge of a competition where these young girls are going to be dancing and parading and, and, and skimpy outfits and all this, you know, that to me was something that could have gone so wrong and it doesn't. 
It it just I guess for a lot of people it did, but but to me it was just like they they modulated it just right. Am I am I on the wrong side of the outrage here? <laughs> Should I be more concerned about the Will the Will Sasso character and not so much about the the pedophile running joke? I did just read a few reviews that specifically called out the Will Sasso character in regards of like things that have aged poorly about it. The pedophile character it's just the absurdity of it. He has that like 16 millimeter camera yep. that he busts out at one point. He's like, <laughs> just keep it in my glove box for, you know, accidents, insurance. And it's whatever the case, this movie, like I said, anorexia is a very serious thing. And like the previous pageant winner is in, you know, she's in a hospital and she's rendered into a wheelchair and that's, you know, played for comedy and um, might be one of the best performances in the movie. <laughs> Yeah, like when they're brushing her hair and a big clump of it comes out. And look, it's comedy's ruthless. It can be. And I think that's the point of this. At no point did I think a character or something in this movie betrayed the tone it was going for or was too much for the tone it was going for because they make fun of pretty much everyone equally. And that's the biggest point is like everyone in this movie, with the exception of Kirsten Dunst, is kind of an idiot. And that's what this movie highlights. Yeah, yeah. And even Kirsten Dunst, I mean, it's not like she is uh, she is trapped within the confines of that small town mentality, too. It's just that she's better than everybody else. But she's still, you know, she has she can be close minded in her own way. So everybody's flawed. Everybody is is a target. And I was going to say that the previous winner that's in the hospital suffering from anorexia is the second Friends Connection, Alex. She is Ross's girlfriend when he's a teacher that starts dating a student oh yeah yep she she's there for a few episodes uh bruce willis shows up to guest star as her dad her disapproving father okay i remember bruce willis being on there i didn't know he was that's where he came in yeah obviously she was much younger than ross ross dates her for a while and then eventually she breaks up with him and he you know he asks all ross about it but yeah i was like oh my god it's elizabeth She's in really rough shape. Who are you? Oh, Mary, you killed me. She always says that. It's a little game we play every week. Same dippy little look on her face. Who are you? Who are you? Just like that. Amber's mother, Annette, played by Ellen Barkin, who honestly, this role is just like a physical comedy performance. She does have some dialogue, but as we mentioned, the trailer explodes. Uh, One... (laughs) fusing uh it looks like a miller high life can i think that's what they're drinking to her hand which she eventually has to have amputated but then also just what follows is her being constantly hopped up on painkillers for the rest of the movie so it's a lot of her and you and i have talked about too the the annoying thing in movies sometimes of people having to act drunk or high Mm -hmm. or something and it doesn't work she she's fantastic in this just her faces and little motions she makes to um amber throughout the pageant And, you know, the mumbling and slurring that she does have. And what makes it so great is that she's accompanied Mm -hmm. by uh, her friend, who's Allison Janney, playing Loretta. You know, I love Brittany Murphy in this, but if anyone wanted to give Janney the the Embry for for this one, I would completely understand (laughs) that. Uh, Yeah, that's what I was going to say. That's what my note says. It just calls them a power duo because they they're the dream team there. They surprised me because I was not expecting them to be sympathetic at first. When when you're first introduced to Ellen Barkin, she she kind of barges in the middle of an interview uh, that Kirsten Dunst is, is having, and 
yells at her and goes, ah, just give me my smokes or whatever. And I was like, oh, so it's going to be that white trash stereotype mother that doesn't understand her daughter's dreams. But then slowly they peel away the layers and, oh, well, she was a past winner. They didn't really go the distance and really cares about her daughter, really cares about seeing her perform. The way that she handles her her accident <laughs> and the fact that she lost her hand later when we see her trying to open a beer with her hook, it, that's, that's, that was one of the biggest laughs I had. She ends up stabbing the, the bottle, with the can with her hook and then pouring half the can on a glass. <laughs> and then she looks so happy. She goes, I did it. <laughs> The when she's at the pageant with the cast like around the beer can and she's just like waving it in the air, so good. Yeah, I agree. I I haven't seen that many Ellen Barkin movies. I know she was in the the third Ocean's Eleven, which uh, Ocean's Thirteen. She is mm-hmm. uh, Pacino's assistant in that one. She's she's pretty good, but I haven't. I don't have an Ellen Barkin type in my head to where you know it was the opposite of the Denise Richards experience with where Denise Richards shattered the image I had of her in my head with Ellen Barking I was just like oh well that's great <laughs> what else can she do and Janny is just perpetually horny in this and I think she hooks up with like three or four different people throughout the course <laughs> of the film uh, very very funny her first appearance she has that 24 or 32 ounce high life and just <laughs> ask the film crew one of you boys want to drive me home don't fall for it she lives two trailers down won't take long then. What you're saying is that there, there's a good chance that she hooked up with Thomas Lennon. I mean, I'd watch that, and I think you'd be lying <laughs> if you said you wouldn't. They never stop rolling. We get the interview process with the contestants, the judges, kind of the preliminary interviews. It's set up to make Amber fail. They ask her to list and spell all 50 states alphabetically, and when she actually does, they're a bit gobsmacked. But, you know, it's a rapid fire of questions that people answer. Amy Adams gets the amazing moment of... Um, who would you make president? And she says Brett Favre very proudly. <laughs> Do you know who Brett Favre is, Julio? I got that reference. I understood that yeah. reference. I was Captain Hell America yeah. at that one. Yeah. But this is this sequence here to me is the Brittany Murphy show where she, you know, she has that just infectious laugh, and it's kind of similar to what um, you know, Clueless would have been several years before this, but um, kind of similar to the goofiness that she came with there, and. King of the Hill was already off and running at this point. So you, there is a point where she does the Luann laugh that I popped really big for. And um, I think she's just so fucking funny here. I, I've said that numerous times, but this isn't even the funniest part she has in the movie. But this sequence, every time it cuts back to her, because uh, her character is obsessed with New York City. So like <laughs> she's a bit, you know, ditzy and head in the clouds. And she laughs, you know, when she's uncomfortable. But then she just wants to talk about New York all the time. It's. It, it just worked really well for me. I'm not going to lie. My, my favorite, the, the biggest laugh for me was just seeing how the pedophile judge was smoking throughout the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> so methodical and so measured. <laughs> how he keeps giving himself away was, uh, man, listeners, if, if the pedophile thing was not funny to you, you must be hating how I keep talking about it. But I, I can't lie. It, it was just funny how he kept giving himself away. Right, like the camera's just holding on him, and he keeps answering questions uh, in a way that lead back to him being suspicious. So he's just like, "Oh, well, I'm a judge because they asked me, not because I like watching young girls." Is that what you were implying? <laughs> Nobody had implied anything. He's he's great. There's also a kind of like a a two part joke about Will Sasso taking his pants off, mm-hmm. which you never see anything. So I thought it was 
tastefully shot. <laughs> He's just in the background. And first they say, you know that his fly is open. And then they're like, you know that his pants are off. I guess the, the, the thing is that they, they drop the R word a lot. And that mm-hmm. I can see how it can be uh, triggering, especially, you know, to those of us who don't use that word and know that using it is wrong. But also, in a way, it kind of feels authentic. That's how people in that community would talk clearly and it i think it says something about their level of intelligence uh, or their their level of culture in a way right yeah even just taking it out it doesn't even necessarily need to be minnesota so don't don't want to sound like we're picking on, on any minnesotans but just the community that is portrayed in this movie up until that point exactly. definitely they seem like the type of people that would be completely crass and you know classless and politically incorrect in that way anyway the the point is that uh, this is okay. Some of it may be in poor taste, and some of it may go too far. Some, but you know what? That's I'll take that. I'll take bold, fearless filmmaking over mm-hmm. Milto's vanilla, mass-produced, studio-approved, mainstream bullshit. We've talked about so many times with movies of like how our opinions of it would be different and more favorable. If we always talk about the movie that teases something and then doesn't commit to it, this movie commits to its tone 100%. Yes. Uh, so, so that's why, yeah, something, the language they use and some of the things that happen, I mean, it, it does feel consistent and that, that makes a hell of a lot of a difference. Uh, I know I may, I, I think I've referenced this before, but this is the kind of thing that made Todd Phillips quit comedy. Right, like the fact that the audiences, audiences started, audiences and critics started turning on this type of uh, of humor, of comedy, where you suddenly you couldn't do this without being ostracized and chased out of Hollywood. Uh, we we lost at least one great comedy director to political correctness, and and I think that you know you you should be able to navigate the line and rate it R, make sure people know what they're getting into, put it in the trailer, but then let this type of movie live and, and and just be out there so that we have some variety when we decide what we want to watch. On the night of the pageant, Amber's dance costume disappears. She accuses Becky of stealing it and they have a fight backstage. Pageant choreographer Cloris Klinghagen gives Amber a new costume. However, organizer Iris Clark says she can't perform as the new costume was not approved weeks ago. Amber's fellow contestant, Lisa, this is Brittany Murphy, takes pity on the situation and drops out to give her her approved costume. Amber is then able to perform her tap dance number and receives a standing ovation. For her performance, Becky sings Can't Take My Eyes Off of You while dancing with a life-size Jesus doll on a crucifix, which amuses <laughs> and horrifies the audience. Also, I, I the, don't think uh, anybody looked horrified. Returning contestant has a dance number two where she's lip singing to cry out loud and while she's being wheeled around the stage. So again, this movie commits to its tone 100%. Suck in the bellies, girls. And tuck in the tushes. Close those legs. You look like a bunch of bow-legged cows. This is like the Oscar clip for Brittany Murphy, though, where she just where she tells Kirsten Dunst, I'm not going to win. You know, you actually have a chance, so go out there and do it. Uh, Kirstie Alley, when she learns of this as the host, because it was all a plan to not let Amber in there, she does that thing of like, all right, our final contestant, Amber, and then like just drops the mic before she even finishes her name. <laughs> we get we get the two emotional moments in the movie, almost back to back. I did not think that this movie, for all that it was making me laugh, that it could actually move me, and, and it did. Because first is when the 
the choreographer, who has been pretty dismissive of everybody's talent or lack of mm-hmm. talent on the show, she uh, she actually compliments Kirsten Dunst, gives her the dress, and, and basically reveals that she actually thinks that she can she can win that she has talent and so that was like oh that's that's really sweet and then uh, the Brittany Murphy moment is also I'm not gonna say it came out of nowhere because it made perfect sense in the way that her character had been established and I, I expected the movie because of how cynical it had been and how cutting it was with almost all the characters I thought mm. that there was gonna be a different way for them to push Kirsten Dunst to the front. Not not such a pure device as, well, one of her fellow contestants says, no, you can wear my dress. That was also pretty sweet. I was not expecting it. Uh, of course, in between those two scenes, there's a scene where Kirsten Dunst tells, uh, tells Frau that this is not a beauty pageant. This is Nazi Germany. <laughs> and Frau's like, where do they get this stuff? <laughs> and then even with like the sentimentality of everything going on uh, with the uh, wardrobe change and Brittany Murphy volunteering her wardrobe to uh, Amber. Amy Adams has like one of the best lines of the movie where she goes, I don't know. They won't let you perform (laughs) naked. I asked. (laughs) She is on her own. You know, she just comes in and out of the movie with some real killers. Cause mm-hmm. there's that moment where she is, uh, prepping for a rehearsal or something. And she's answering a question that we haven't heard from the, the documentary crew. And she's talking about how she just found out that she's pregnant. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, we're, I was talking about the pageant. Oh yes. I'm very nervous about the pageant. <laughs> Good stuff. But Hulu, you were saying we finally then get to see the, the tap dancing. It all comes together. It's all happening as Penny Lane would say. It's it's what we've been building up to. This how did you feel? Did it satisfy your your expectations? Were you disappointed that it's clear that it's not Kirsten Dunst tap dancing? Or were you in awe of the magic of filmmaking and how they can, you know, edit <laughs> a sequence like this where it's obviously somebody else's tap dancing, so they shoot that person's feet as they're tap dancing and then they they intercut with Kirsten Dunst on a wider shot, just moving around. And and it's just, that's just the way it works. Editing works in a way that makes it look like it's her. Tell me, because I was a little conflicted at first. I was like, ah, oh, this is so fake, right? Just CGI this. CGI the dance. Put Kirsten Dunst's head on a wider shot of somebody else tap dancing. Uh, but then, about halfway through, I realized I was really into it. You know, because they keep cutting to her smile and how she's reacting or how she's uh, expressing herself. And the audience is reacting. Not all of us are going to be John Travolta, you know, like uh, Vincent Vega's dance number, the shit he does in Greece for crying out loud. <laughs> That's uh, They can't all be that. So in cases like this, you get a great actress like Kirsten Dunst, and then you get a really good filmmaker and a good film editor. And, you know, who cares? So it's time to announce the winners. One of the funniest things in the movie that has no attention drawn to it is the second place winner gets a $75 scholarship. <laughs> I remember when I was in high school, I got a, you know, and I'm thankful for everything that I got this way. I got a $500 scholarship and even that was, you know, that, that doesn't even pay for all your textbooks for one semester. That covers the Dr. Pepper bill. The, oh yeah. There was the chart breakdown of the money that was spent on me in college. <laughs> Dr. Pepper would be the highest. Dr. Pepper and wrestling would be the highest margins. The pageant winners are announced, 
Amy Adams comes in third, Amber is second, and Becky wins. During Becky's victory parade the next day, which they, they all line up for, she's going to ride in. Is, is it a dragon or a swan? I can't remember. It's a swan. A swan made in Mexico. I love the way Denise Richards and Kirstie Alley say Mexico. The, but, the best part is they say it several times throughout the movie, and then the payoff of Sam McMurray saying it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, Dad doesn't give a shit. Mexico. Because <laughs> it's America, damn it. So she gets atop this swan, and she's killed in a freak accident when the thing fucking blows up. A grief-stricken Gladys flies into a blind rage, admitting to being responsible for all the shenanigans, and is immediately arrested. Amber is crowned the new pageant winner. At the state competition, Amber wins the title by default after the other contestants get food poisoning. This includes uh, Sandy Perkis from Saving Silverman. She was the first one that she was dressed like Dorothy and walked up on stage and was going to be sick. Uh, for me, this kind of this is when the movie is just kind of like okay because we we move out of the town, which I, I kind of enjoyed the movie staying in that sandbox. However, it needs to be stressed that even if I don't like the idea of the movie moving on here. It is saved by the combo of Mo Gaffney and Nora Dunn, who run the pageant at uh, <laughs> at the state level, as they're just like drunk the whole time and have those really thick Midwestern accents and just constant one-liners. I can sum up our entire philosophy with this glass. I can look at it and say it's half full, which in the beauty pageant biz means where the hell is my way? And Alice and Janney's there, too, so she provides some comedic relief. But She gets uh, late again. If I am going to downplay the last 20 minutes of the movie as the part where it didn't lose me, but kind of started to stray off, I do want to give credit to Nora Dunn and Mo Gaffney. Fantastic. Do you think Richard Kelly is a big Drop Dead Gorgeous fan? That's how he ended up casting Nora Dunn and Will Sasso in that movie. God damn it, dude. I always forget Will Sasso's in that, and he's kind of like a badass in that movie. <laughs> and Nora Dunn, ta- who does she tase in the dick? Uh... Joe LaRoquette. That's right. God, what what a film. <laughs> the places we've gone with this podcast. Amber receives an all-expenses-paid trip to the national pageant as a prize, but upon arrival, she and the other state winners are devastated to learn that the Sarah Rose Cosmetics was shut down for tax evasion, meaning there will be no national pageant. This sends all contestants except Amber into a rage-fueled rampage where they vandalize the company property. There's definitely something to seeing a bunch of uh, young white girls starting a riot outside a, a closed down cosmetic factory or whatever it is that uh, that place was. Uh, it is a good character moment for Amber because it shows that like she's enjoyed it, but it's not really what she wants. Where all those other girls, that's the only purpose they have in life. She has far bigger fish to fry. She has far bigger lutefisk to make. Oh, <laughs> yeah. She. I mean, one of the there are two running jokes throughout the movie that are amazing. Every time that somebody brought it, brought it up, it was just, I had to laugh out loud. And the fact that, and they, they both have great payoffs, right? One is the cops joke. Yeah. Several times in the movie, when characters see the documentary crew, they they ask, are we on cops? Is this cops? And then, of course, as you referenced earlier, <laughs> that culminates in the scene where the documentary crew actually runs into the cops crew. <laughs> Which is when uh, when Kirstie Alley goes crazy and has her Oscar speech, her Oscar clip. And then the other running bit is Kirsten Dunn's obsession with Diane Sawyer. To this movie's credit, 
they show some restraint that they don't actually have Diane Sawyer come in at the end and, I don't know, give her a pep talk or something. But it does, her, her finale, her, her big character ending is just that she she ends up going into the news, like becoming a newscaster. So it's something, one of the most, one of the funniest things in the movie ends up being one of the biggest character rewards in a way. That was, that was cool. Well, it's even funnier because the way she gets into newscasting is, <laughs> you know, the movie ends several years later after... Kirstie Alley Gladys escapes from prison and becomes involved in this police standoff Dude, at the this, supermarket. This shit is brutal. I, I mean, I was laughing and I was also keenly aware of, man, this is even more so than the pedophile uh, jokes. The, the idea of, of a white woman shooting at innocence, having a, a standoff. I mean, that is, I know, I mean, it was 1999, it was not 2023, but still, that's, uh, you know, to set up. A, bit, a comedic set piece like that, yeah, I understand. You know, the, 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 yeah. I understand the backlash. The news anchor gets shot and killed, and that's why Kirsten Dunst fills in on the spot, and she just has the natural poise. So the the, <laughs> the, the network picks her up. But yeah, you get Kirstie Alley in like all camo with her face painted on top of. She's got like a sniper rifle on top of the supermarket, vowing revenge to get Amber. Obviously, that's a bit prickly, but it is hilarious that the payoff to her trying to get revenge is Amber getting to live out her one dream in the life. <laughs> <laughs> but also the way that it's staged. I mean, because they, they say, you know, there's a voiceover that's explaining what happened, and, and but you see it happen. I think that basically you get the idea of what's going to happen before you see it happen. And in my mind, I had assumed... Oh, we're not gonna we're not going to see it happen, right? We we see Kersiali shooting and we see the the scenario and then we're gonna cut or gonna go to black. But no, we actually see the the newscaster gets shot and then we see Kirsten Tunes without missing a beat, just grabbing the microphone <laughs> and continuing the broadcast. And I was laughing and I think part of it was me thinking that it was truly funny and also just that that laughter of like, I don't know how to react to this, but it's great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I was going to say, Alex, I get what you're saying because I had the same feeling about the last 20 minutes uh, of like, well, this this story should have, like, it was over. Like, it was it was about the pageant, and then we the pageant was over. They, you know, Kirsten Dunst got second place. Denise Richards won, and she seems to be okay. Kirsten Dunst seems to be okay with that. I applauded the just how brave it was for for both the screenwriter and the director, just for the filmmaking team to keep going <laughs> past the the standard ending that you would find in your standard movie. There's regular structure, and then there's what this movie does, which is it blows past two endings because you could have ended it then when they uh, when the regional pageant ends and Denise Richards wins, or you could have ended it. When Denise Richards dies in that fiery explosion and Kirstie Alley confesses to her crimes. Or you could have even ended it after she goes to Nationals. But they just keep going. And it's, uh, I think it's just, they trust their story. They trust the audience. They trust us to know that, uh, and they trust Kirsten Dunst, right? They trust us to realize that in the end, it was Kirsten Dunst's story. And that story is not over until we get to the very, very end of this competition. And they trust Kirsten Dunst to pull it off, right? We don't have, she doesn't have anybody else uh, with her. I guess she, she takes Allison Janney with her. But for the most part, all the supporting characters are gone. We don't see them again. She still carries those last 20 minutes like a champ. In its hilarious way of execution, it does show that just being a good person pays off in the end because 
Amber wins. Well, according to Allison Janney, she was just lucky. Being a good person had nothing to do with it. Be that as it may, I, I like to take away the being a good person will get you somewhere, even if it's through complete Looney Tunes methods. Well, you know who was a good person, Alex? Peter. And Peter was gay. <laughs> gay! <laughs> <laughs> Are you ready for real talk? I most certainly am. Let's move it along. Let's go to real talk. Don't cry out loud. Just keep it inside. Learn how to hide your feelings. Fly high and proud. And if you should fall, remember you almost had it. 